I guess if, first it probably does make sense, uh, Thomas, to kind of delve into where you got started. To so go go ahead on that. So in the nineties, uh, well, I, I originally started out working in tropical rainforests as a tropical plant ecologist, but then I I got the idea of artificial life into my head in the late seventies, and so in nineteen eighty nine I found the way forward on that and I built an artificial life system that was quite successful and was able to self-replicate and evolve inside of computers, the Tira system. And I did that through the 90s, but I also had another latent powerful idea about a methodology to study the human mind and I got involved in that in the 2000s and I was able to finally move forward on that. And this is where the uh, short piece I sent you sort of emerges out of the synthesis of those two interests. It was, I was responding to a request to be involved in, a, in an interaction between fiction writers and scientists looking forward to the year 2070, hmm. uh, projecting technology forward. So I wrote that piece as, as a basis of a fiction, right? But, but based on my own thoughts about how things might go. So, uh, being that it was intended to, to sketch out a fiction, I didn't need to worry too much about reality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a cool um, thing about fiction, I suppose. Yeah. And what was that program in the 2000s called again, just to, to reference? I know you mentioned you got to make some headway during those years. That was my own research. It was, okay, cool. Yeah, which is just now coming out. So obviously that's a, a little bit of, of your background, and when you got into the, the notion of, of artificial life in the first place, I know you had mentioned obviously you're involved in rainforest, um, did, was that spurred forth from your experiences in nature? Was that spurred forth from fiction? I know you had just mentioned fiction, or what kind of took you there in the first place? Uh, I was a graduate student at Harvard in, in biology, and uh, one evening I went into the science center, and <clears throat> the Cambridge Go Club was meeting there, and there was a guy by himself and I sat down curious to see what was going on and he was explaining the game of Go, making lifelike metaphors perhaps because I told him I was a biology student and uh, then he said, did you know it's possible to write a self-replicating computer program? And instantly the light bulb went on over my head that if you could add mutation you could have evolution and a diversification of a whole phylogeny of artificial living things and so I said, well, how do you do it? And he, his response was, "It's trivial," and that was all. That was all I got out of it. But the, the virus had infected my head. Now. And, you know, it, it, it was a, a really powerful idea that had to become latent because I didn't know enough about computers to, to do it until ten years later when I was working with the turbo debugger and I saw into the machine and I saw the uh, the code segment and, and the data segment and the registers and, and I understood what it would mean to write a self-replicator, and I did it. Cool. Nice. So the pieces had to be put together. And for you, I mean, the, the I'm always curious. I'd spoken about with um, another uh, Lifeboat fellow the topic of um, life extension, sort of the history of that conversation, how it's developed. Obviously, artificial life is a different conversation, um, but nonetheless has its own uh, sort of history and where where it was spurned forth from in terms of the initial theorists, um, and obviously you had gotten involved there. 
Um, who did you draw from, or, or you know, how how do you see kind of what you're doing now, playing into, or maybe even building off of some of the the previous thoughts in the domain of um, AI or artificial life? Well, the, the ideas that that I put forth in that little piece I sent you really emerge out of my own work with the human mind, where I have discovered what I call mental organs, which provide structure for the mind. It's If we could find the way that evolution shaped the mind, that would likely be the most fundamental organizing principle of the mind, and I think that's what I've found. Uh, mental organs provide a direct connection between genes, uh, proteins, neural structures, and mental phenomena like consciousness, joy, compassion, uh, comfort. So it's a way for evolution to sculpt the mind and it, provi it, it provides a conceptual framework within which the whole thing falls into place. It has tremendous explanatory view of the mind. And one of the things that I found exploring the mental organs is that they divide into two broad domains. There's the modern mind and the archaic mind. And the modern mind probably emerged in the last hundred thousand years and it's based on language, logic, and reason. The archaic mind, which would be tens of millions or hundreds of millions of years old, is based on feeling. And both of them are able to, to provide a fully functional mind or or to, they're, they're able to represent the world in their own domain. So as adult humans, we live largely in the domain of language, logic, and reason. I'll just call that cognitive, but I, I, I mean it in the narrow sense of language, logic, and reason. Whereas uh, feeling, which I'll call affect, that's the separation. So if I say cognition, I'm setting aside feeling. The thing that we uh, have lost touch with is that feeling is a rich language of description. There, I, I found actually two forms of consciousness. There's the modern adult consciousness, which holds language, logic, and reason, and feeling. And then there's an archaic consciousness that only holds feeling. It seems that it's set up in such a way that it can't hold cognition in consciousness. But before humans, that was the only form of consciousness around. And so our animal antecedents have fully functional minds based on feeling alone. And the children that we develop from begin life with affective minds. The, the cognitive layer develops later. And, and there's a gradual transition between a fully affective mind and a largely cognitive mind. So. This is where I begin to doubt the idea that digital systems can represent, let's say, it just let's just say the affective mind, I, I, because they're based on feeling. It's it, it has nothing to do with logic, whereas digital systems are, are fundamentally based on logic. If you if you go to the root of the digital system, you have logic gates. So the underlying physics is a physics of logic. Imagine that you are a software inside of the machine. 
what does the software see of the machine? Uh, the, the same logic gates could be built on large-scale integrated circuits or transistors or vacuum tubes or mechanical switches. And the software wouldn't be able to discriminate that because the software only sees the logic gates because that's the fundamental physics that's seen by the software. Understood. So I, I have doubts that that fundamental physics can render feeling. Uh, and and I haven't been able to make a coherent logical argument for that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I may not be able to convince anyone, but I have a serious doubt that, you know, that this idea of universal computation, which I think is, has gone way beyond uh, Turing's original intent. You know, his, his original intent was that a, a universal Turing machine can emulate any other Turing machine. But now there are people who believe that the entire universe could be a simulation inside of a computer, and uh, people who believe that we can download our, our minds into computers. So basically, the current belief in universal computation is that everything can be represented in digital computation. But that's not the state of the current practice. I mean, there's no there's no actual reason to believe that. It's just a faith, which I lack. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I think. And, and uh, I would agree there is a widespread notion that that is sort of the inevitable direction, which it, it would seem as though, you know, concrete evidence w would, you know, there's there's no uploaded cat brains, you know, never mind human brains, there's no replicated, right, so we haven't seen it. You know, the, the Kurzweil's and, and folks uh, of that ilk uh, in the world would state something like, well, you know, there were no rocket ships and everybody you know, told the rocket makers that they were dumb and that, you know, getting to the moon was, you know, a super dumb thing too. Um, so, you know, stuff has happened that we thought at some point would be impossible. But for you, obviously, it's a more of a fundamental notion of logic gates being capable of creating feeling in the first place. And the brain for you, obviously, is not, or it, it, Kurzweil makes the analogy a lot, right? And some folks do too. Um, many And many of the folks I've spoken to who are in the biology side of things, tend to kind of lean away from this notion. Uh, but the idea that the, the mind as computer sort of analogy, right, where the brain has its own kind of logic gates uh, or liken likenings thereof and connections and communication thereof, and that it somehow produces that which we experience as consciousness. How would you uh, state that, that you know, our brains would, would be, you know, clearly different in terms of their connectedness, interaction, etc., of producing consciousness than any kind of digital system could be? Well, logic is a new, uh, an evolutionarily new thing in in minds, and I'm not just talking about human minds. So through through evolution, the, the language logic and reason didn't appear until about a hundred thousand years ago, and it's a layer that's added on. In my studies, it's only the serotonin receptors that are involved in this system, and, and they're uh, just fifteen of over three hundred different receptor systems, uh, which are which form the basis of the mental organs. And so uh, it's a small percentage of the mind that, that's kind of a small layer that's been added on to the archaic mind, which is an ancient mind with, with a tremendous evolutionary depth, tens or hundreds of millions of years. And now you have this, this thin layer on top of it to ex extend the capabilities, but language, logic, and reason isn't 
isn't the fundamental structure. The fundamental structure is affect, it's feeling. It's, and, and this is the subjective experience that I don't believe that any computer that exists has a subjective experience. And I have this vision of the future in which at the end of his life, Kurzweil, at great personal expense, has constructed this machine. And as his life slips away, he pushes the button, his mind is downloaded into the machine. And he does not realize that the machine doesn't have a subjective experience. Because in order to realize that, the machine would have to have a subjective experience. But it doesn't. And he just ceases to exist. Hmm. And... Now, do you believe, I know some folks make the argument, um, man, speaking with people on consciousness is certainly, uh, you know, Chalmers' arguments, and there's enough stuff just about his work to juggle the rest of these issues, but some folks would argue that there may be some kind of function even without consciousness. Like, for example, might you think that if that transition thing could happen where Kurzweil could be beamed into his, you know, friendly robot, that even if it didn't have subjective subjective experience, it could still act and work and function as him, but it would just be hollow in terms of feeling qualia. Um, the, zom the zombie. The zombie idea, right? The zombie notion. Um, so do you see even that as foreseeable, or even that as maybe too much, because that still needs to be a decision-making machine at maybe a deeper level that has to express some semblance of affect, which it could never have. Um, what are your feelings there? of affect and I don't know where it would learn that emulation uh, we as children uh, where we still have a rich effective domain and so we learn the world through affect and then when we reach adulthood that affect is greatly attenuated it isn't completely eliminated and the degree of attenuation varies from person to person but we can end up uh, basically running an emulation so beauty for example beauty is a feeling we, we think of beauty as an adjective but it, it begins as a feeling that's its that's its origin and uh, there are people who who've had uh, receptor systems that provide that feeling pharmacologically activated and, and Charles Tart describes it beautifully. He, he says, I never knew what beauty meant. Uh, I'd used the word thousands of times in my life. I, I had learned what things to apply it to, and there was this you know, vague feeling. But I never knew what beauty meant until this capability was, was activated. Is this so, an experience with psychological drugs? Mescaline. Mescaline, yeah, yeah, yeah. Charles, Charles's work is fantastic. It was yeah. one of the first books I ever read was Waking Up, actually, uh, about this topic, so I've always respected his stuff. So uh, as an adult, he runs an emulation of beauty, and, and, he, and he had forgotten what beauty was until he, he had his alpha-2 receptors activated. So I, the thing is that we, we learn this through affect, that's the developmental process that makes us into adults, and the machines will never have it. They'll never have it, so they, they couldn't ever get to that point of, of even running the emulation, much less having the affect. Okay. Um, hey, let me give another example. So there's this project, I forget the name of it, but they're trying to create an AI by 
loading all knowledge into this machine. So let's take uh, bread as a food. Okay, so now what the machine knows is that the symbol bread is a member of the set represented by the symbol food. It doesn't know what bread is, it doesn't know what food is, it just knows that bread is a member of the set. Okay, that's, that's a logical relationship, and that's the only thing that the machine can understand. There's no connection to the real thing. Uh, so, okay, well, let's define bread and let's define food. So we put in those definitions, but those definitions are another set of logical relationships between symbols, and, and the machine can never go beyond that. Where do humans get that? Well, humans get that from the affected mental organs. The alpha-2 mental organ provides us with, with a sense of the essential nature of things. What does that mean? Well, I, I, I can't really say what that means, but you you see a chair and you see the chairiness. It just emanates its essential nature. And, and this is something that evolution has provided us with for understanding the world, but it's, it's, it's understood through affect, not through logic, because logic is just gonna tell us that bread is a member of the, the symbol bread is a member of the set represented by the symbol food. And, and, yeah. and that machine will never understand bread or food. Yeah. Um, hmm. And I can I can see where you're coming from, and I think that there are especially I mean even with current AI projects, you know, getting a machine to understand even even um, forget Google's exact studies of getting a machine to identify a cat or a dog on a YouTube video, right? It took a very very long time to train, and is still relatively iffy because you know as you had mentioned the cattiness does not jump out to the machine just now, yeah. right? Cattiness does not. Um, Whereas on the other hand, my infant daughter saw a dog barking in the yard, and then we went to a restaurant, and she saw a dog sleeping in the restaurant. She knows it's still a dog. It's a different kind of dog, totally different behavior, and, and she knew that yeah. this was the dog. She understood something about the essential nature of dogs. So evolution provided her with the, the, the capacity to do that easily. And do you think it's, and, and I, there's all kinds of, you know, potential ways of kind of approaching this in the first place. Do you think it that there's a chance. For example, um, you know, I'm sure there was some pretty solid logic for the, uh, you know, Wright brothers to not fly as just a random example. Um, and, and that there were probably some guys, we can imagine, who would have been like, you know what, we're just not flying. Like humanity itself shall not flyeth um, due to X and Y and Z. Do you, do you think it's it's ever potentially safe, or that in this case maybe it is safe to literally dogmatically and potentially for you know millennia make the the hard prediction with you know close to or at uh, certainty levels that machines will like I don't care where we go how we develop we'll never make it to a certain level. Do you feel as though this conclusion is it around that kind of a level for you, just in terms of? Um, you don't believe there, or you know why so? Well, I'm I'm not in a position to make that kind of a definitive uh, conclusion, but that's one of the things I proposed in that little piece that I said yeah. that that this is a challenge that ought to be addressed both theoretically and empirically. Uh, I agree. I, I propose that you know it's it's on the level of Gödel's incompleteness theorems that uh, we should be able to to say. Is this computational medium capable or not of subjective experience, of feeling, of consciousness? And that that ought to be proved 
theoretically one way or the other and demonstrated either way in practice. And, it, and you know, in my fiction, I projected that's quite a ways off in the future. I, I suggested the year 2040, but I don't know how to do it. I'm, I'm, but I'm saying that the issue needs to be settled because a lot revolves around the outcome of that issue. Right now, there's faith that it, it can happen in, in large segments of, of the technological community. But I have serious doubt. I, you know, I don't share the faith. And, and that's why I call that piece a branching future. Because you get two different futures depending on the outcome of that uh, situation. And that's also, uh, you know, one of the last topics I wanted to be able to jostle a little bit back and forth. Um, for me, there's so much that hinges on that exact question, which is one of the initial reasons I was like, oh, I should get this call done and get together with Tom. Um, is that to me, there's nothing with higher ethical weight or gravity than the tinkering with or creation of sentience and consciousness itself. It would seem to me, at least through my, you know, human little senses that I have, um, that that would be the bedrock of what holds ethical or moral weight in the first place, is that semblance of qualia, consciousness, etc. So the tinkering with or creation of, for me, has always been um, seemingly just massively, massively more important than a vast number of things that I think are generally assumed to be more important, maybe more immediate, which I wouldn't say are wrong, but I think it's often overlooked, and, and clearly that's an area you focused. Um, where would those changes come into place? Let's say we realize 2040 or before or, you know, whenever it is, that at the end of the day, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to make machines um, conscious, no matter how we slice it. How would that change the world in your mind? You know, what maybe should people be thinking about or preparing for before then? You know, how are you, we could even say, what if it does? How would those trajectories sort of diverge? Or what would be some of the, the bigger divergences that you might, uh, you know, conceive of? Well, if it can't happen, nothing changes because it already doesn't happen. Yeah. So, you know, we, we know how to live with that, uh, for better or worse. Uh, things would change dramatically if it did happen. Uh, then, you know, these machines, you know, the, the, the ethical issues become complicated because the machines, uh, you know, they would have some status as, as sentient beings. And, and, and then we have a problem of, well, depending on how intelligent they are, of, of having a effectively created another intelligent species. I mean, if we did that, humans, <laughs> there used to be multiple species of humans coexisting on Earth, and there's only one survivor. You know, we yeah, don't, yeah. You know, we, we don't tolerate an, another intelligent species very well. And if we created one, like, there could be a real conflict there. But it, there certainly would be serious ethical issues if it, if it were true. Uh, and then the other thing is we're talking here about synthetic minds, which don't have to be so similar to natural minds. Mm -hmm. Also, we can have very different kinds of minds coming out. Now, in, in my fiction, I, I basically was suggesting the idea that there's this very, there, there is a very strong desire to engineer artificial minds. So if you have the branch that allows computers to do it, a lot of the effort might go, presumably would go, in, into creating synthetic minds through computers. But if computers couldn't do it, that effort could go into designer minds, what I call designer minds. I think because of, of the new understanding that comes out of my own work, 
I've kind of unlocked the key to the structure of the mind, it opens the door to manipulation of, of, of the mind, you know, once you understand its organizing principles. So then I envision by 2070 in this branch where I call it the logical fail branch where computers couldn't do it, that people create, you know, by 2070, designer minds were commonplace. And, and some people chose to develop minds for, to take them deeper into language, logic, and reason, to be able to work longer hours, to multitask, and to, to keep busy, and so forth, and so on. Whereas other people develop their minds to be more relaxed, and joyful, and playful, and happy, and uh, compassionate, and so on. So, but th those are personal choices that different groups of people would make in an era of designer minds. Yeah, and, and I think that that, as, as you would project there, I think that if logic fails, um, or maybe even if not, maybe even if we are on a trajectory where we're getting to see some you know, results or, or maybe it all together ends up clicking on some level, there's still the capacity to tinker with sentience via an understanding of a, more, a much more thorough understanding of, uh, of biology, cognition, etc., and the, the actual functioning right. of our brain. So I think that that enhancement thing doesn't go away if computers can't do it. Exactly, and I, and I mentioned that in that little piece that I, that I sent you, the, the last couple of sentences say, well, even if computers can produce it, this, there's nothing to prevent this other you know, kind of uh, designer mind from being developed. Which, which also obviously poses a lot of serious questions because, you know, as you had mentioned, we could have whatever kind of minds, you know, we'd like. I mean, we might imagine massively capable sentient entities um, with, you know, very little semblance after all of the enhancements and building and tweaking and adjusting, assuming we get better and better at that as we tend to do as human beings and stuff. Um, especially if we have giant enhanced minds working on the study of giant enhanced minds, I imagine we'd, we'd get pretty good at it pretty quick. Um, you know, we may have massively powerful and capable uh, entities with little semblance of what a human mental orchestration organization might be, or maybe some base semblance, but at the end of the day, something so divergent may be potentially dangerous. Well, this is the thing that concerns me. I feel like we're already going down that path. We, we have been going down that path through evolution, actually. Uh, the, the emergence of the cognitive mind produced a population explosion, which created uh, an extraordinary Darwinian fitness benefit to the, the mental organs of, of cognition, language, logic, and reason. Uh, the mind is populated by mental organs, and each mental organ has to make a contribution to fitness in order maintained in this population in the mind and and, and so so now uh, the cognitive mental organs fitness jumped as a result of the technology that they gave us which caused a direct Darwinian benefit through a population explosion and so now the affected mental organs have you know, their individual contributions to fitness is, is relatively negligible I mean I, I can only make this gap as large as yeah, the screen, the screen here but, but yes it's, it's, it's off <laughs> the charts and, and so now, uh, by the time we become adults, the, the affected mental organs are largely vestigial. They've, they've been shut down by other mental organs from the serotonin system. And, and my concern is that we're losing our humanity already. You know, we've been on an evolutionary trajectory towards Spock, you know, towards being a Vulcan, a, a creature that has you know, very well-developed language, logic, and reason, but doesn't have feelings. 
Spock is, is a fictional character who's more extreme than we are, but we've been on that path uh, for some time without any manipulation. And, and the thing is that we, we really have forgotten as adults what the effective domain is, is about and, and what its, its values are. Some people rediscover that through psychedelic drug experiences because that's one of the features of those drugs is that they activate uh, the effective mental organs and pe people don't understand what it's all about, but, but they're, you know, they rediscover it and, and they see the value in it. It's something that we're leaving behind and, and my concern is that if, if we engage in engineering the mind without an understanding, without an understanding of what the effective domain is, that we would easily engineer it away. You know, we don't we don't understand what it is that we're we're tossing out. We, yeah. Because we've lost touch with it. And but it, but it, it for me it's the basis of our humanity. Humanity is is what our, our semblance of feeling of empathy of compassion of enthusiasm of emotional richness. There's a lot of stuff there because this is this is where we you know as as I was saying a while ago this is where we come to understand the world through the effective domain as children. And then as adults, we're kind of running an emulation, but it was created through an understanding of the world, through the effective domain. Well, what happens if we engineer that away completely so that it doesn't even function in children? And all we're left with is this tremendous cognitive capacity. Then we would be like these machines that I'm complaining about that, that really don't have any understanding at all. They just have the language, logic, and reason. I mean, we could make ourselves into that, and that, that would be dangerous. I think it would as well, and I, I think, um, you know, for better or for worse, I know there's a lot of potential thinking on those topics. Some people might say, hey, you know, um, as humans, you know, we grow hair on our arms, and to be honest, I don't really care about growing hair on my arms, I'd rather not. Or, you know, we experience sadness, and frankly, I don't really like sadness, so I'd rather not. Um, you know, and that, okay, it's natural, we could call it human, but, you know, maybe I just don't feel like it, and maybe we should move away from it. I think the potential danger is, is maybe you're expressing. Clearly, I think that our ideals, you know, huh, you know, like, you know, my hair is brown. I don't really like that. Changing that, let, not. Let, let me respond before you go further. Go for it. There's, there's something you said that I want to respond to. Okay, cool, cool. Um, when we talk about feeling, we tend to think only of emotion. So anger, uh, disgust, uh, fear, sadness, uh, happiness. These, these are the primal emotions, which we still retain. We still retain those feelings. And they're troublesome because they're tightly linked into motivation and, and they can make us do things that, that we regret. Yeah. So, you know, those are things that we might like to distance ourselves from further. But this is a this is just a, a, a tiny piece of, of the feelings that, that actually exist. That the feelings go so much Beyond that, the ones that we, we, we're losing, that we aren't still aware of as adults, they are a language of description, like flavor. I, I like to make uh, the analogy of flavor. I mean, think about flavor. If, uh, by flavor, I mean smell and taste. Yep. So if I hold uh, a rose up to your nose and you, you take a, a breath, you know something about the rose. You know how it smells. If I put a fine curry before you and you taste it, you know something about the curry. But what is it? What is the experience of, of smelling a rose? It's a feeling. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, so we're even speaking on that level. 
it's a feeling. And, and this is a category of feeling that we, you know, we largely retain it only through flavor. But this is the same gene family. The G protein coupled receptors form the, the odor and taste receptors and the neurotransmitter receptors that form the mental organs. So the, the feelings that I'm talking about are ways of representing the world. They're ways of knowing the world. That, that are able to provide a very rich, detailed representation through feeling alone. I want to I want to describe a, a simple example. Somebody had had their kappa receptor activated, and they gave this description. They said, "I was an eight-year-old child uh, in a playground near my home by a lake uh, on a swing set in, in in the middle of a summer day." They said, "I didn't see any of it. I just felt it." Now, think about this for a moment. Feelings alone rendered this scene. Feelings are a language of description that's rich and subtle and detailed enough to render that scene. And, they, and, and I just gave you the, the words that they used to describe it, which is only you know, just a bit of, this, of the full, richly rendered scene that they experienced. It was, it was, it was real to them okay, in, in all the richness and detail. There's no language, logic, and reason involved in this rendering. There's not even a visual image, but feelings alone were able to paint this scene. Affect is a language of description that emerged for internal representation before language, logic, and reason. Language, logic, language was added to that in order to be able to communicate this. Affect had the defect that it, that it's ineffable. You can't put it into words. You can't communicate mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And there was a there was a powerful evolutionary need in a in a highly social species to be able to communicate this stuff, so language was added on, but the words crystallized. They accreted around the pre-existing language of description. It's a language older than words, and we're we're losing it. This is this is a rich representation of the world. Uh, I think that's tremendously apt. Um, very very apt. I've heard similar notions, but never quite put that way. So that is that is a. Uh, a really interesting way to put it when you had said that it, the actual seeing isn't really even half as what the feeling is of painting that entire scene. Um, and it, it seems as though you know, it's losing, if we lose touch with that or, or maybe you're unaware of the value or, or even what we're messing with if we begin you know, tinkering that, that we not, not only could have potentially terrible side effects, we might lose that what you're referring to in many respects as our humanity. I can see that. Uh, I can see that whether or not it almost seems as though, and I'm not sure if you have a similar inkling, whether we appreciate that or not, um, which you know hopefully we'll come to, and and depending on how we weigh it, regardless, we'll we'll end up enhancing. Like for example, philosopher uh, David Pierce, uh, we were lucky enough to interview yeah, I know a, a while ago, um, has his own particular uh, notions as to. You know the direction of sentience and the direction of our qualia of being, you know, a range of positives. And some people argue very firmly against that. Some people argue that it's, uh, you know, decent. But clearly, he's he's tying in, maybe not in the exact same way. And I'm not sure how your your, uh, you know, research might tie in or not. But he's tying in the notion of affect very firmly with what the future of sentience and consciousness should be, and that that more so than more memory. Uh, can multitask better, you know, that that ought be such a thorough emphasis for us. It seems as though if we if we value affect and, and we tinker with that and or we value what you broadly refer to as cognition and tinker with that, 
regardless, we're going to end up diverging, it seems, pretty far from traditional humanity. Um, whether we acknowledge it or not, do you think it's possible to lose maybe a lot of our humanness, even you know, even if we do tune into that affect? Yeah, I, I, it's, it's good that you bring up uh, Pierce because because I do know his work and I and I see so I, I can see the issue clearly. He he certainly um, envisions a future in which we've monkeyed with the whole system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we we haven't thrown away the affect, but we've uh, ramped up uh, the intensity of all the positives in the system. You know, he wants not just humans, but all creatures on Earth to have, uh, to be living in a sort of a happy utopia, uh, you know, permanently, uh, an extremely euphoric state. You know, he, this is, seems to be what he's... Ranges, yeah, ranges of euphoric yeah. states, yeah. So, I, I think that, you know, monkeying with the system is, is risky. Uh, you know, it, it's achieved a balance uh, that I think is probably far from optimal. You know, I, I think we've gone too far towards Spock, and we need to back up a little bit. So I, I think there there may be good motivation for making adjustments, but it has to be done with caution. It's you know, we, we don't understand all the implications. And I think uh, he'd agree. I think, or I'd hope he'd agree. He'd agree with that. So if we do, if tinkering is made, affective, cognitive, whatever, we better sure as heck understand what we're moving into. And I think, you know, that is, in terms of policy and legalities, I mean, in the world of genetics, you know, there's certain things you can and can't do, and there's certain phases of allowances for certain types of research or sorts of research and all sorts of criterion and checking and double-checking and IRB and things like that. And I think... Very, it, it would appear rather clear that hopefully, if we were going to move in this direction, there would be a lot of that, um, a lot of that to ensure that we're have a, a decent grasp, a very interdisciplinary grasp uh, of what it is that we're actually uh, meddling with. But would you potentially still see that euphoric leaning? Whether we we get, we, you know, let's assume maybe we get it, we kind of understand at least to some semblance, you know, the function of these systems, the mental organs, interactions, cognition. Um, that even then, that might be a Spock-like transition over time? Well, mental organs are currently a hypothesis. But yep. I'm, I feel confident that it'll eventually be raised to love the level of theory and that, it, that, it, that it's true. And it's, it's a fundamental advance in the knowledge which has the potential for being converted into you know, technology, so to speak. In other words, the knowledge runs the risk that we can use the knowledge <laughs> Wisely or, or unwisely, yes. so you know it, it definitely opens a Pandora's box. Um, he actually lost the train of thought. Oh no! Yeah, I was saying, it, do you, is it potential uh, potentially possible that um, that transition towards a more euphoric state, even if we understand what we're tinkering with, could kind of still remove a lot of our our humanity uh, in the way that you perceive it, see it. Well, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that, I, is that I feel that mental organs provide the methodology to move forward for better or for worse. And you had uh, suggested that if it's adequately thought out, we, we examine the ethics, we control uh, the work through IRB approval and so on and so forth, that perhaps it could be done safely. 
part of the problem with that is related to what I like to call guerrilla psychopharmacology. Uh, you know, th there are uncountable numbers of psychonauts in the world who are doing their explorations illegally. And I, I don't think it can be controlled. I mean, it, it, depending on the nature of the technology required to make changes in the mind, uh, it may or may not get out of the box. There, there are lots of technologies in the world today that are kind of escaping into uh, you know, people at large that... Nuclear. Yeah, you know, nuclear, biotech, all of these things are, are coming out of the, lab, the laboratory and it's becoming easier and easier for, for you know, the average person to do it. Manipulating mental organs may follow that path to where it isn't uh, controlled by IRBs. So, you know, that's part of why I envision a future in which you know, some people make this choice and other people make that choice and they don't necessarily get approval for the changes mm. that they make. Yeah. So, you might they, go down that road. Certainly a lot of people may not have the knowledge to make those changes wisely. That's likely to be safe to say. Um, and because I know we're approaching our, our time here, um, the final question that I normally ask during interviews is as follows. Obviously, we had sort of jostled around a lot between uh, biology and uh, consciousness, uh, mental organs, which, you know, obviously a uh, theory which you're working on yourself. Um, given, and I've spoken, as I would mentioned, even off-cam with you here, with folks in robotics, artificial intelligence, philosophy specifically, uh, biotechnology, entrepreneurship in this domain, etc., despite all of these different positions and initiatives and agendas, there tends to be a general inkling towards making the world an aggregately better place if we can help it, in terms of our understanding, in terms of the future of our experience, um, in terms of maybe guiding research. How do you think, given all the different initiatives, all the different um, areas of expertise and geographical locations, with that similar intent uh, of making the world better, how do you think that you know, given all these different starting points and agendas, we can still find a way to, as a global society, make it so that we're aggregately working towards something uh, better and greater? Let, let me try. Okay. I do, as I said, I do feel that we've gone a little too far down the path towards Spock and, and that we would benefit from backing up and rescuing the affected mental organs before they become pseudogenes because they're, I think they're... I think there's an existential risk. This is something that I wanted to float in, in Lifeboat when I was ready. That, you know, here's an existential risk that I envision, the loss of the affected mental organs, that they could be pseudogenes as many of our odor receptors have, have done. Uh, and I think in, in, in that process, we would lose uh, a lot of our humanity. So I think it's something we need to become aware of. We need to, to think carefully about needs to be openly discussed. People need to begin to understand what's at, what's at stake, what are, what are the issues. People need to rediscover the effective domain and contemplate whether that's something they're prepared to let go of, is it something that we should retain. I could be wrong. It might, be better. it might turn out that it's a good thing to put behind us. I don't think so, but I'm not sure, actually. You know, uh, they're dramatically attenuated as adults. They're very active as children. Uh, but I see a lot of bad stuff going on in the world, and I think part of the bad stuff going on in the world is because we don't feel enough as adults. And if and if we retain these feelings as adults, we might make different choices about how we live, and the things that we do, and, and 
they might be better choices. Uh, if you look into the field of wisdom, and there are researchers who have studied wisdom, and that's, that's a topic. Wisdom emerges out of the unity of the cognitive and the affective. They say it straight up. You don't get wisdom from logic alone. It, it, it requires the, the, the systems acting together. And, and I believe this because I believe that the cognitive and affective domains blend perfectly. And when they do, we think in different ways. Because the, the cognitive domain was never designed to function alone. It's informed by feeling. And, and it, it, it influences the way we think. And I, and I think that we would think in, in healthier ways with uh, a, a better contact with the affective domain as adults. So I think there's, there's something to be gained by backing up the process that's brought us to where we are now. Yeah. I think that could make the world a better place. But I'm not completely sure. Yeah. It really needs to be examined carefully. And that's hopefully what, uh, what I'm aiming to do with these conversations is get these ideas out in more places to more folks with more areas of expertise to cross-reference things. And I know you had mentioned at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's a challenge that should be pursued, uh, you know, in, in uh, actual research, in theory, in, in all regards, to really be able to discern what maybe our best steps forward are. And hopefully, if nothing else, holding more conversations like this and sharing this stuff might uh, bring us a little bit closer to that. And on that note, I know I'm bringing you right up to about time. Thomas, I more than appreciate you taking the hour of, of, uh, of your time to be able to ping some ideas back and forth, go into some of your own projects and share things with us. I appreciate it. Okay, well, that was fun. Cool. Thanks, Tom. All right. Boom. So that... Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, and be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Uh, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>